Well, it'd be really helpful to have a Bible ready. So Daniel chapter 6, we're at the very end of our series in Daniel. So Daniel chapter 6, that's what we're looking at today. So there's also an outline on the back of the news. So if you'd like to have a look at that, have that ready as well. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. And pray now that as we come to Daniel, that you will really be at work in the power of your spirit shaping our hearts, our minds, our wills, that we would increasingly reflect your desire for our lives, Lord, and live faithfully, reflecting the good news that you are God. You are working out your purposes, and we seal those culminating in your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Daniel in the lion's den, it is probably one of the most famous Bible stories of all time. Daniel is thrown to the lions, but thanks to God, he emerges unscathed. Brilliant. But of course, there is a bit more to the story than that. There's a bit more going on. In fact, there's actually a real danger that we could be so familiar with this story that we bring to it a whole bunch of assumptions. We might even treat it like a standalone case study of what it looks like to stand firm in the face of trouble, that we can actually miss the full weight of what is being shown to us about God working out his purposes and inviting us to trust in his plans. So let's back up a bit first and let's recall how did Daniel end up here? Remember, the book of Daniel opens with the great power of Babylon having just conquered Jerusalem, plundered the city and ripped waves of Israelites into exile. Daniel, along with his friends, were taken into King Nebuchadnezzar's court to be trained, educated and assimilated into the Babylonian ways in order that they would become ancient influences amongst their own people. The hope was that they would abandon their identity in the Lord in order to get on board with the Babylonian Empire, the great Babylonian project. At least that was the hope. This is kingdom pitted against kingdom. This is kings against the one true king. But time and time again, In the face of all this pressure to assimilate into the Babylonian world, Daniel and his friends keep on remaining faithful, trusting in God's purposes and plans. There are so many instances in the book of Daniel in which it doesn't really look like that God is in charge, but Daniel and his mates live like God is. And so by the time we get to the lion's den, Daniel has been there in Babylon for over 60 years. He's resisted taking food from the king's table. His mates have refused to bow down to a giant idol. He's interpreted dreams by God's strength. Even when doing so, could have meant his head was on the chopping block. So they're the big headline events over the past 60 years in which the faithfulness of Daniel and his mates has been on display. But keep in mind that there has also been all of the decades in between when Daniel and his friends have kept on being faithful in the ordinary times. I think in some ways what is really most extraordinary about the book of Daniel is not necessarily the big, giant, extraordinary moments, 
but the faithfulness in the ordinary every day that have not caused a stumbling block for the moments when it counted. Kings have come and gone, but now the great Babylon, which seemed totally untouchable, it has been overturned by another empire. Belshazzar has gone, King Darius the Mede has arrived. And so we finished up last week, chapter 5, verse 30. That very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So it's really totally shocking. So Babylon was thought too big to fail, but its fate is almost a footnote. Its fate is almost a footnote. So now there's new management in town, but Daniel remained faithful through all. This is not a story about how to be victorious when facing the lion's jaws, but in confidence that as God is God and he's working out his purposes, what does it look like to be faithful wherever God has placed us? So wherever God has placed you right now, on whatever front lines you serve, be it through challenge or through monotony, what does it look like to be faithful to God who is indeed working out his purposes? I want to suggest there are three things in this chapter, but also the pattern of the whole book that we can learn. It means remembering who's boss, standing firm even when it's costly, and trusting salvation belongs to the Lord. So first, what does it look like to be faithful to God who is working out his purposes? It rem means remembering who's boss. So let's pick up verse 1, chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps, who are like governor, governors, local rulers, by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So it really is quite extraordinary that Daniel, so remember an exile from the conquered city of Jerusalem, has been so consistent in the workplace, so he is a star employee, he has served so well for more than half a century. Can you remember serving in a workplace for over half a century? There are a few people in the community of Sabbats who have done that, but have served so well for more than half a century that kings keep on entrusting him and his friends with significant, if not the highest, of responsibilities. Now, clearly, this is not some sort of prosperity promise that so long as you're faithful to God, you're going to be blessed with promotion and career advancement, because we know right here that not only were the kings pretty fickle, but the same characteristics that gave confidence to the king threatened his colleagues. Whilst we're not told precisely how Daniel, Daniel distinguished himself, it becomes really obvious in verse 4, as his colleagues seek cause to trap him. So verse 4, At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him, because he's trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. They must have been thinking, how annoying is this? Daniel could be trusted because of his integrity of his character, 
So he wasn't there to serve his own interests, which means he couldn't be bored at any price. But Daniel could also be trusted because of his competence. He was neither corrupt nor negligent. This is quite the performance review. This is a a long-term performance review. He has been there for over half a century. And his motivated antagonists, well, I'm sure they've gone around, they've done a thorough search, they've been asking around. Today they would have thoroughly examined his social media profiles. They're looking for any dirt, discrepancy or deficiency of Daniel as a just cause for his demise. But they can't find anything at all. It's really quite remarkable. It's extraordinarily challenging. In fact, I think it's downright confronting. Consistency matters. So often on our front lines, whatever they may be, but often in the front line of work, we can have very few opportunities to talk about God. Now, of course, we should talk up whenever we have that opportunity, but actually in some workplaces, you might even be restricted from sharing anything verbally about your faith. Yet we see right here, there is something in the consistency of witness in the way that Daniel lived, which can be powerful. I mean, this is the ultimate toxic workplace. Daniel could have not only compromised his conduct to keep safe, but he would have been rewarded for doing so. There are many instances in workplaces and all sorts of front lines in which certain things which are wrong, so you might think in some workplaces, petty theft or treating employees really poorly, well, there are many things that would not only be culturally acceptable in those settings, but actually many people around you would prefer you to do it, otherwise you're indirectly challenging their behaviour. The administrators and the satraps likely didn't want Daniel in charge because it's going to put a real dampener on their conduct. I remember a friend once who was very senior in their area, they made an ethical uh, mistake that many would have actually just turned a blind eye to in their workplace, but feeling so convicted by the error, they not only set things right privately, but they admitted it publicly to everyone in their division. Now, I'm sure some aghast would have thought, don't do that, you're setting a terrible precedent. Others encouraged would have thought, this is a person who I can trust. This is a person who actually is serious about what they say they believe. Daniel was trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. What could fuel Daniel with that sort of resolve, even when it was costly? Well, it's clear. He had a phenomenal clarity of who he was really serving, of who was his ultimate boss. That King Nebuchadnezzar or King Darius may have been his line managers for a moment, but the Lord God was actually his ultimate and permanent boss. Every time Daniel needed help, his go-to was God. Every time Daniel was put on the line, he sought to glorify God alone. Verse 5. Finally, these men said, 
we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They thought his weakness was actually the strength of his faith. They had to engineer a situation in which Daniel's loyalty to God would be exposed as greater than his loyalty to the king. Now, clearly, this wasn't a secret. This wasn't hidden because they could absolutely rely on his faithfulness. They couldn't get him because Daniel was lacking in character or competence. They couldn't get him because he was some sort of you know, obnoxious uh, religious zealot in the workplace. The only angle was that Daniel knew who his ultimate boss was. Last week, I was so greatly encouraged to take part in uh, one of our members dedicating their new business to God. Uh, we pray that the person would go to God for help and that through the business that God alone would be glorified. And what amazed me was that when the owner made a response to all that had been read, preached and prayed, they invited all those presents that it, present that if they were good friends, that they would hold him accountable to the promise, the promises, that this venture wouldn't be about money or career or kudos, but that in all and through all, it would be for God and for his purposes. Remember, whatever front lines you go to this week, your ultimate boss is not the one in the director's chair, but the one who's enthroned in glory. Second, what does it look like to look like to be faithful to God who is working out his purposes? It means standing firm even when it's costly. Verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went out, went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So the critical moment couldn't be any clearer. The administrators and the satraps are thinking, Eureka, we've finally got Daniel. We can trap him with the one loyalty that we know that he won't compromise. That God, not the king, is God. They're, of course, being incredibly deceptive. They don't say that this is actually, in fact, just directed to one person. But appealing to the pride of the king, they're hoping that he will be blind to the obvious. That whilst this may not affect those who pray to a multitude of gods, it will absolutely lock in and wedge in the very person who Darius plans to put in charge. And whilst the king is intoxicated by his own self-importance, they ensure that they get it enshrined in the law, which even the king couldn't overturn. They set it for 30 days, but so faithful was Daniel's devotion to the law that they knew that it wouldn't be a matter of days, but just a matter of hours before they would find him doing precisely what they expect him to be doing, praying to God. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So Daniel stands firm in this critical moment, not by proudly beating 
his chest. He doesn't rock up to the king and demand his rights. But he stands firm by getting on his knees and praying. In fact, time and time again, in the face of trouble, that's what Daniel did. He got praying. And then when the moment comes, he doesn't have to figure out his theology of who's in charge. He doesn't have to explore spiritual practices of depending on God. It's already there. Daniel knew that this wasn't just 30 days of inconvenience, but it was a moment in which his loyalty was being tested and trusting that God is God who is working out his purposes, he prays plain sightly, not to show off or stomp his feet in protest, but because he is doing what he's always done. As one commentator puts it, his consistency assisted courage, his discipline fed faithfulness. I think so often we can think that standing firm is just in those critical moments, those big moments. But don't miss the consistency of him standing firm all along for 60 years. It's all of the years in between the big moments of the book of Daniel, the thousands of decisions that Daniel must have made day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. Long, patient faithfulness. That's incredibly costly. And it's almost the last thing I want to hear because patience is hard. It's the opposite of our world of instant gratification. We're so used to having whatever we want, whenever we want it. Did you know that if a website takes more than three seconds to load, 50% of people give up and go somewhere else? <laughs> three seconds! Daniel was there for over 60 years. See, the Christian story of resilient disciples standing firm is not just the big headline critical moments which may or may not happen for you, but the everyday continual ways in which we stand firm in the Lord. Saying yes to Jesus in the ordinary, saying yes to Jesus in the extraordinary. Might it be costly like it was for Daniel? Of course, we shouldn't be surprised by that. In fact, we live in a very unusual time and place for now in which standing firm in God is very unlikely to cost our lives, but it's rarely been the norm in history and it's rarely the norm globally today. In fact, if you read the early account of the first Christians in Acts, it's only in chapter 4, by the time you get to chapter 4, that the first Christians are arrested. It's only in chapter 7 that the very first act of martyrdom takes place. But we can face this sort of cost with every confidence that God is working out his purposes by trusting that salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you can serve continually, rescue you. So the contrast here, the contrast between God and King Darius, it couldn't be greater. So here Darius is, is, you know, the one who is mandated to be the object of worship, as some sort of divine figure, yet he is so impotent in his actual power, because of course he's not God, 
But actually, he's even powerless to rescue Daniel from his own law, even when he wants to rescue Daniel. He's torn up about it. He can't sleep. And by his own admission, he knows that there is only one who can rescue Daniel, the Lord God himself. All throughout the book of Daniel, time and time again, we see this pattern that whilst worldly powers on the surface look unparalleled in their might, everyone has come unstuck, and it's only the Lord God who has stood. And so, first thing in the morning, Darius rushes to the lion's den with one question, verse 20, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you? From the lions? And the answer? A resounding yes. Verse 22. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. So Daniel's gone from trouble to triumph. Not because God delivers us from every situation in this world, but trust that God was able and would do whatever best served his purposes. You know, Daniel could have so easily taken this into his own hands. He said, I'll just hide away for 30 days. I won't pray for 30 days. He could have avoided the consequences of the king and in effect tried to save himself. But he knew where his ultimate salvation came from. Daniel was saved not because the king found him blameless, but because he knew that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. That's why when Daniel prayed, you know where he's looking? He's looking to Jerusalem. He's looking to the place that even though it was conquered, was the physical reminder of God's presence. It was the place from which they expected God's rescuing king to come. The very anticipated king who Daniel would have visions of. The king who some 500 years later would also go into the pit of death and have a stone placed at his tomb, and when on the third day the woman would arrive at daybreak, they would find the true king alive. See, Jesus, even though he was innocent and blameless, well, he was subjected to death, even death on the cross. And God vindicated him, raising him, defeating death itself. Daniel faced the lions along with all the challenges of the past 60 years, trusting in God's salvation plans. How much more can we be strengthened, not in anticipation of God's salvation plans, but in the knowledge that they have already arrived? That no matter what we face in this lifetime, it is not the final chapter. And in Jesus, not even death itself can snatch us away from the Lord. That's how we can be fortified. That's what Daniel points to. And if you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord, I want you to really note there's an invitation here. Right at the end of this chapter, at the start of Daniel, Darius breaks into praise. In fact, he commands everyone to join in with the song. And who is it to? Praise to the God of Daniel, the living God who endures forever, the one who rescues and saves. 
But here's the invitation to you today. That you can know the Lord today along with the salvation that he brings, not just as Daniel's God, not just as someone else's God, but through King Jesus, you can know him as your own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your phenomenal love. We thank you for your grace, your goodness, and your mercy. We thank you that you indeed are God, that you are working out your purposes, and we see those culminating in Jesus. Lord, we thank you that no matter what we face, that we can keep on recognizing you as the ultimate boss, that we can stand firm even when it's costly, because we can have every confidence to trust that salvation belongs to you and you have made it available to us through your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen.